Last time, you may remember, we made the point that two great institutions were set forth by the Lord at creation. Those two institutions are the Sabbath and marriage. And it's no coincidence that both of those great institutions have not only been attacked and assailed and undermined through the ages, but they are particularly under assault in the day in which we live. As we talked last time about the Sabbath, and I just want to recap a little bit here, we did say that the Sabbath commandment was in force, just like all the other commandments, before it was actually codified in the stones that were given to Moses. See, a lot of people think that Exodus chapter 20 is when the law commenced. It's not. That's when the law was written down for Moses on two tablets of stone, suggesting their permanence. But the fact of the matter is that those commandments, for example, thou shalt not kill, were already in force. That's why God punished Cain for murdering his brother. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt do no murder, was in force. Again, we can go through each of the commandments and see that this was the case. The Sabbath is a case in point. In Exodus chapter 16, we read about the manna that was given by God from heaven. The manna was to be gathered every day for six days, but on the sixth day they were to gather twice as much, because they were not allowed to gather the manna on the Sabbath. Or some people who thought, well, we'll do it anyway. And they were chastised for that. Why? Because the commandment was clear. It was already in force. And you can read about it in Exodus 16 from verse 23 to verse 30. The keeping of a weekly day of rest and worship is taught from the beginning and all the way through the Scripture. When you come to the book of Nehemiah, you will find that because the people of Israel, the people of Judah lived in a theocracy that is under the direct rule of God, therefore Nehemiah implemented God's law, including punishments of those who broke the Sabbath. And for example, in Nehemiah chapter 13, you read in verse number 15, these words. In those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses as also wine, grapes and figs and all manner of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. And we can read the following verses in which he contended with the nobles of Judah. And Nehemiah said to them, verse 17, What evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? And he went further than just testifying against them. Because you read further down that he actually contended with some of them, he cursed them, he smote certain of them and plucked off their hair. Nehemiah didn't mess about when he was implementing the law of God at that time. The fact is that the Sabbath commandment was in force and there's a blessing attached to the keeping of a day of rest and of worship. 
And our nation would be a better nation if we could return to the days when most things were shut on the Lord's day. We would be far better off than we are today. But we're living in a day when everything happens on Sunday. Everything. Why? Because men have turned the Sabbath into a holiday rather than what it really is, which is a holy day. Now, the original creation was commemorated by the Sabbath. And we see there, as we mentioned last time in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, that God blessed that day. He blessed the seventh day. That's the day following the six days of work. He sanctified it. That means He set it apart for a holy purpose. He put a fence around it. He marked it off by boundaries because that in it He had rested from all His work which God created and made. God set the example for us. He ceased from work. And we are to do the same thing. Anything that's not in the realm of necessity and mercy It's not to be done. Now, Exodus chapter 20 gives us the commandment as it was written on the table of stone. Here's what it says. Exodus 20 from verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. Because there's always a tendency for us, isn't there, to forget. The Lord wants us to remember it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Why? Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. There you have evidence that the first creation, the original creation, was to be marked by the keeping of a Sabbath. Now when we come to the New Testament, and there's a new day of worship, the first day of the week, when Jesus rose from the dead, and there's plenty of internal evidence in the New Testament that the disciples, the apostles, kept the new day. That new day was to commemorate Not the old original creation merely, but the new creation. What is the new creation? Well, if you compare Exodus 20 and those words about God making the heaven and earth and so on in six days and blessing that day, you compare the New Testament reference, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. Paul writes, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, that's the original creation, let there be light. And there was light. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the new creation. And we commemorate that new creation each week by worshipping the Lord on the first day of the week, the day of resurrection. The day which is spoken of prophetically in Psalm 118. And if you check it out by the New Testament Scriptures in the Gospels, you will see that these words are applied to Christ and His resurrection. What words? The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. 
You go to the New Testament, you'll see that that is referred to several times in connection with the resurrection. And then it says this, This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now you can say that every day of the week, but you can particularly say this on the Lord's day. Because this is the day which the Lord hath made. How did he make it? By rising from the dead on the first day of the week. This great ordinance, this great institution of the Sabbath, the day of worship, I say it is under attack in the day in which we live. I recall many, many years ago, Reverend John Greer, when he was preaching in Malvern, he made a statement that I never forgot. He said, every unnecessary thing that takes place on the Lord's Day on Sunday, by way of sporting activity, shopping, whatever it may be, every bit of that that takes place on the Lord's Day that is unnecessary is an attack upon the worship of God. And it really impacted me when he said that. How true that is. This is a day that belongs to the Lord. It's His Someone said to me one time, but isn't every day the Lord's day? Doesn't every day belong to the Lord? Yes, it does, in a real sense. But it doesn't say of every day of the week that the Lord rested or ceased on that day, and that He blessed that day, and that He sanctified that day. That He set it apart. That He marked it off. There's no other day of the week that the Lord says, you're to mark that day off as different from other days. But he does say that about the Lord's day. And that is why I disagree with the statement that some preachers are very fond of making, and I know why they make it, but it just doesn't happen to be true. When they tell you that the Wednesday night meeting is the most important meeting of the week, it is not. Now, is it important? Of course it's important. Should we pray? Of course we should pray. We should set a high premium on the place of prayer. But for anybody to tell me that some other day of the week is more important than the Lord's day, that simply doesn't square with Scripture. It's not right. This is the day that the Lord hath made. And we're to make a special effort to preserve this day as different from all other days. What horrible parents I had. I played soccer every day of the week, except the Lord's Day. My ball went into the cupboard on Saturday night and it didn't come back out again until Monday. Because this is a different day. I could buy something from the ice cream man that came around our development every day of the week, except Sunday. Because this is the Lord's Day. This is a different day. You don't do the things today that you do on other days. So I had special Sunday books. I had special things that belonged to the Lord's Day. That's how I was brought up, and I'm ever so thankful for that. This is a day when most people have no idea when they wake up on a Sunday morning that it is Sunday. It's just like any other day. I'm showing my age now. When I was a small boy, you knew when it was Sunday. You know why? It was quiet. It was quiet. That's the way it's meant to be. 
But this is one great institution that is assailed and undermined today in so many different ways. But there's another great creation ordinance, and that is marriage. Two institutions, I say, have been attacked, assailed, and undermined through the ages, and they're under special assault in our day, the Sabbath and the sanctity of marriage. Now look at what it says in chapter 1, verse 27 again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. How did he create them? Male and female created he them. No third class, no neutral gender, no non-binary persons. Male and female. You know all about chromosomes and all that, don't you? That's how God made us. And we've got people today trying to destroy what God has created. Genesis 2 verse 18 goes on to say, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Oh, the all-wise God can't have Adam on his own. Got to make him a helpmeet. Somebody who's entirely compatible with him. That might enter into a one-flesh relationship with him. And so we go on in the chapter 2 to verse number 20. And Adam gave names to all cattle, to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. Adam saw a horse and he said, it's a beautiful creature, but no. And he saw a dog. That's a beautiful animal, but no. And as one preacher I know said, when God created woman, Adam said, now we're talking. You see in verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He put him under anesthesia of the best kind. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. What a beautiful thing. God opened up Adam's side to take out a rib with which he would have a bride built. Our Lord Jesus Christ had his side opened at Calvary in order that he might have a bride, even his church. This is the first instance, by the way, of bloodshedding in the Bible. I know it doesn't mention blood, but it does mention that he opened up his side, he closed up the flesh thereof, I'd like to see that happen without blood. This is a beautiful picture of the work of Christ. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman. The word in the Hebrew is builded. He actually builded a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Woman, Isha, as it is in the Hebrew, because she was taken out of man, Ish. And then we read, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, 
and they shall be one flesh. Here is the foundation of marriage. One man and one woman in a monogamous relationship. Now, you come to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 19, and see what the Lord Jesus Christ said about this. Matthew chapter 19, from verse 4. The Pharisees had been trying to trip the Lord up, and they asked him about divorce, about putting away. That's what that is referring to. Is it lawful for a man to put away, to divorce his wife for every cause? And he answered, verse 4 of Matthew 19, and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning, that does away with evolution, doesn't it? He which made them at the beginning, made them, look at it again, male and female. God never did make transgenderism. God never did make any third or, what is it, however many, Genders are supposed to be like 37. The people are such fools. I saw a t-shirt one day advertised. It said on it, there are more than two genders. And when you're ordering the t-shirt, guess what it comes in? Male or female? Yes, I do think people are mentally challenged. But it's more than that. It's evil. It's evil. That's what it is. It's against God's order. And God said, let's continue the words of Jesus. He made them at the beginning, male and female. And then he quotes Genesis chapter 2. And said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And when you have two women trying to be man and wife, that's putting asunder what God has created. It doesn't say, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to another man. Nor does it say that about a woman. Rather, as you come further in your New Testament, you'll see what an abomination that is in the sight of the Lord. We may as well go to Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul here, by inspiration, deals with this subject. And here's what he says. Romans chapter 1 verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. People say love is love. No, lust is lust. Lust is lust. He gives them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And watch this. Verse 26. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. I repeat that. Vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. That's lesbianism. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly. That's homosexuality. 
sodomy, to give it its biblical word, uh, meaning and biblical terminology, and, notice this, receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. In other words, the payment in their bodies that is appropriate for that behavior. Monkeypox. Acquired immune deficiency syndrome. AIDS. Someone tried to say, oh, monkey, that's not a gay play. You get it just by touching people's clothes. No, you don't. Those honest physicians that have come out and spoken about this will tell you how it's contracted. You smoke the head of yourself, you'll probably get cancer. You whore around, you'll probably get venereal diseases. You do what God said is unnatural. You will receive in yourself the recompense of your error which is meat. This is strong stuff, isn't it? This is really, really out in your face, isn't it? But this is God's word. And to continue this thought about marriage being between one man and one woman, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. Did you notice that? And let every woman have her own husband. What do you mean the Bible doesn't talk about sodomy? The Bible doesn't talk about transgenderism. The Bible rules it all out by what it does say about human relationships. Let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. Again, Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church. He's talking about marriage. And he lifts it up into the highest realm of all. When he says, from verse 31 of Ephesians 5, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Again, that's Genesis chapter 2. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. See, when people destroy God's picture through marriage, it's really an attack on the gospel. It's an attack on the gospel. Sodomy is an attack on the gospel. Transgenderism is an attack on the gospel. And as we go on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 9, Paul is dealing with the whole issue of communion and leading up to that. And he says, Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Creation. And finally, Hebrews 13, verse 4. Really straightforward language again. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, the marriage bed, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Therefore we say all sexual activity outside of a monogamous relationship a marriage of a man and a woman is an assault upon the sanctity of that institution. Those activities that God regards as unlawful, you study the law of God, even the ceremonial law and the civil law of Israel, you'll see that it includes premarital sexual relations, extramarital sexual relations, sodomy, 
polygamy, incest and bestiality and also this present nonsense of transgenderism. And by the way, it's a fad. It's a fad. Young people are being encouraged at ever increasingly lower ages to think along these lines. Maybe you're a boy in a girl's body. Maybe you're a girl in a boy's body. It's being encouraged. We've got politicians who can't even answer a simple question. What is a woman? You've got a woman. I think she's a woman. I think she can define herself as a woman. But she doesn't know what a woman is sitting on the Supreme Court of the United States right now. Did you ever think you'd live to see such a thing? And then there's a preponderance of easy divorce. I don't want to get into the subject of divorce today. It is a tragedy. It's something that happens. And God told us in his word that he gave a bill of divorcement through Moses because of the hardness of men's hearts. There's reasons why these things happen. But our society making it easier and easier to get out of marriage is not a good thing. Ah, I'll just get married out. Ah, it doesn't work out just within a few months. Oh, just beat it. Again, this is an attack upon God's institution. And you will see that some of the prohibitions in the civil law of Israel show the high regard in which God holds marriage. I don't want to get into uh, today the exposition of Leviticus chapter 18. But you will see in there some of the things that God addresses that many folks today think are quite normal and natural and without any consequence. God calls those things an abomination. Two great institutions have been attacked, assailed and undermined. They're still being so today. The Sabbath and the sanctity of marriage. But from there I want to deal with one other topic that comes out of the whole creation story. And it is the advent of sin. The coming of sin into the world. In some respects this is a great mystery. I remember studying this in theology class. Where did sin come from? And we can't really have God creating sin because that would be to attack the veracity of God and the character of God and the attributes of God. But nonetheless, the Lord in his providence, in the record of the fall of man, shows us the part that was played by the serpent. And we have to go to chapter 3 verse 1 for this. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman. So here we have the devil who is called in Revelation that old serpent. Coming in the form of a serpent to tempt Eve. The record of the fall of man follows. And this, of course, is a pivotal moment in all of human history. God did not create our first parents in order that they might sin. He created them upright, according to the book of Ecclesiastes. But they sought out many inventions. 
And here's what the Lord said when he first created man. Genesis chapter 2 verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man. That's important. He commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. So, just look around you, Adam. Anything at all, you can have it. But, verse 17, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And it is important to look here at the original scripture. The Hebrew of this, thou shalt surely die, is literally, dying thou shalt die. Why is that important? Because when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord in Genesis chapter 3, they didn't just fall over and drop dead. But they began to die. The seed of death and of decay was now sown within them. And of course that happened in the early generations that people lived for hundreds of years. But then that life expectancy got shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter as the effects of sin took more effect on the human race. But from that day that Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord in doing what they were told they were not to do, they began to die. They actually died spiritually. That is to say, they had a will that was Godward in its bent, that now became sinful in its bent. Man, coming from Adam, therefore, has a sinful will. He doesn't move in a Godward direction now without divine intervention because of Adam's sin. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in Adam all die. So all of us are affected by what happened with our first parents. I say this is a pivotal moment in all of human history. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. You're forbidden to eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest of thou shalt surely die. And that happened in Genesis chapter 3. What a sad record we have there. God had placed man whom he had created under what theologians call a covenant of works. And so theoretically, hypothetically if you like, Adam could have lived on into eternity if he had not fallen and sinned against God. That's what would have happened. Because God created man upright. He was in communion with God. He was in fellowship with God. That's certainly indicated by what we read in chapter 3 verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God had been in fellowship with Adam. But now Adam's hiding himself from God. If he had not sinned, if he had not fallen then he could have and would have lived on eternally. How do we know that? Well, because the Bible tells us in the book of Galatians chapter 3, the following. Notice this very carefully. 
Galatians chapter 3 from verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith. But notice these words. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. In other words, if someone continued perfectly to keep the law, he would continue to live. That's the way it was with Adam. But of course, in, in one sense it doesn't matter anymore because it didn't happen. Adam did not continue to obey God's law. He did not continue in that position where he was obedient perfectly to God. He sinned. And so it is now impossible for anyone to be saved by keeping the law. Think about this, the implications of this for all of us. <clears throat> if you were able, and of course you're not, neither am I, but if you were able from this point on in your life, to the end of your life, to live a life of perfect obedience to God's law, it wouldn't do any good. Why? Because you've already broken His law. It's too late. But in any case, you're not able to do that. Because in many things, as James put it, we offend all. We don't want to sin, even as believers. We don't desire to sin, but we do. There's a sense in which we can't help ourselves. Now, don't imagine, or don't extrapolate from that, that you can't make any effort as a believer to live right. But what I will tell you is this, no matter how well you do, you still will never do well enough to please God. No matter how much love you think you have for the Lord, it's never going to be perfect love. You're not going to be able to live a perfect life of obedience to the law of God. This is impossible because we have sinned. How did we sin? We sinned in Adam. Did you ever think about that? That in the Garden of Eden you were there and I was there? That's why the Bible says, In Adam all die. 1 Corinthians 15.22 That shows us the fall of man and its consequences for all mankind. Romans chapter 5 teaches the same thing. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Look at this. Wherefore, as by one man, that's Adam, Sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. By the way, that does away with the so-called millions of years of animals dying before man was on the earth. Because the Bible says here that death came by sin. Before there was sin, there was no death. But again, notice it. As by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that, and you could read this, in that all have sinned. And all of us have sinned. And we sinned in Adam. And that's why when we're born into this world, we sin naturally, because we're the children of Adam. 
I guarantee you there's not a one of you that's a parent in this place today or listening to my voice. And you had to teach your children how to disobey you. You didn't have to teach them. It comes naturally. One of the first words they learn is no. Right? No. What do you mean no? No. And what you meant was yes. You don't have to teach your children to disobey, to do bad stuff. When I was a little boy, I used to hang about with other little boys. And they used to love to smash stuff. What is it about little boys? It doesn't seem to happen with girls. But little boys, there's a pane of glass. Smash it. There's something to wreck and destroy. Smash it, wreck it. You know how it is with toys. They last about a day and then it's done. They just love wrecking stuff. Sin comes naturally. Sin comes naturally. And we read that in Scripture, don't we? In Psalm 58, verse 3. The wicked are estranged, when? From the womb. From the womb. They go astray as soon as they would be born, speaking lies. My mother used to love to tell the story about when I was born, I was yelling and yapping right away to be fed. Couldn't wait. From the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born. It comes naturally to us. Again, you go back to Psalm 51 and verse 5. He says it there. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Right from the start. Oh, butter wouldn't melt in little Johnny's mouth. Really? He's a wee sinner. And little Susie, she's a wee sinner. That's how it is. And all sin has its origins in the events of Genesis chapter 3. And you see there, so many things taught that I haven't got time to expound today. But the devil started out by casting doubt on God's word. Genesis 3 verse 1, Yea, hath God said. You can hear the sneer of the serpent. Yea, hath God said. That's not what God means. He's casting doubt on God's word. But then Eve rightly said, well, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, God hath said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. So he begins by casting doubt on God's word, and then he just flat out denies it. He starts out by saying, that's not really what God meant. And then he says, God never said that. And that's not true, what God said. It isn't true. You shall not surely die. Is not what's behind these so-called ministers who tell people there's no such place as hell. You shall not surely die. You don't need to worry about a lost eternity. That's an old wives' tale. God is love. God loves everybody. In the end, love wins. One guy wrote a book by that title. Love wins. And I want to tell you it's a fairy tale. Because fairy tales end and they all lived happily ever after. That's not what Jesus said. 
It's not what the Bible teaches. There's a heaven to gain and there's a hell to shun. And the fall of man is spoken of throughout the Bible and the evidence of the fall is all around us every day and within us. We're sinful creatures and we need God's salvation. And when we come back to study these themes of creation, that which will be before us is the great theme of redemption. Because there's an answer to the sin question. And is it not a remarkable thing that before man ever sinned, God already made the provision of a saviour? How do we know that? Because the scripture tells us in the New Testament that Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 4, According as he hath chosen us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Before man ever sinned, God had made provision for man's salvation through a Redeemer. The Lord Jesus Christ. And how good it is to know today, as the hymn writer put it, All my iniquities on him were laid. He nailed them all to the tree. Jesus, the debt of my sin fully paid. He paid the ransom for me. May he be all our trust, even today.